Um, so 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read that out for us. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and uh, then we'll see what God has in store for us. So, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure, reverent, reverent lives, don't let your beauty consist of out with things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Verse 7, husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Very good. So um, to start off, I just want to be totally honest that I'm quite nervous preaching this passage this morning. Um, I, don't, I don't normally feel nervous. I'm quite okay with public speaking. I've done enough preaching now that I feel all right, but this morning I'm feeling quite nervous. Um, and for a, a couple of different reasons. Um, the first is that um, me and Patrick have a view on, on marriage and the relationship, the, the, the role of a husband and wife that's, that's very nuanced. It doesn't just neatly fit into your standard categories of complementarian or egalitarian, which is like the two big camps really in the Christian evangelical world. Um, it's, a, it's a mixture of elements in those, in those views. So that's one. So that we're already coming into this with a very nuanced view. Two, I'm, full, I'm fully aware that there are a lot of married couples in this room um, that this is very relevant to. And you have your own views on these things. And you've probably figured out ways to, which do, um, to do marriage yourself. And you have strong beliefs in those things. So I'm aware of that. But then also, I'm really aware of the fact that um, this passage has been extremely abused um, throughout the years um, of Christianity, um, and unfortunately, it has been used to cause a lot of harm to women, um, sp um, sp specifically. So, um, when I talk about things like headship and I talk about things like submission, I'm aware that for many women, um, hearing words like that actually, um, you can feel a lot of pain and a lot of hurt um, in that. And so, um, what I'm going to do this morning is, is do my best to handle this passage and to, to bring clarity to you um, and to preach this text in a way that I believe Peter intended it to be, to be received. But I'd love to encourage you that if you don't understand anything um, that I mentioned here this morning, please come and talk to myself or talk to Pat. And if you have disagreement with anything that is mentioned, please, please do come and talk to us. We are a church that um, loves wrestling with the truth. Um, we're not scared to, to approach topics that we're uncomfortable with. We, um, we want to avoid being overly dogmatic about things in a way that we pretend as though we've arrived and we've got everything figured out. And so we fully recognize that, um, you know, this process of growing as Christians involves continually rethinking, continually reevaluating, and God uses the community to shape us in moving forward in that way. So please feel free to come and talk to us. So with all of that said, confessing my nervousness, I am also excited about it um, because I do believe that there's going to be healing for some people here this morning, and I trust even some um, beautiful healing for some marriages here, here in the room today. Awesome. So what is going on in First Peter? Just a little bit of overview of the context. Um, Peter is writing to Christians that are in Asia Minor, which is like modern-day northwest Turkey. Um, these believers have been scattered um, all throughout this region, and they're gathering in like small house churches, small, small home groups, like our, our cell group sort of thing. Um, and they're going through a really, really hard time. So they're, they're suffering um, under persecution. Um, they're suffering just in the, the difficulty of the um, Roman world in that, in that particular day. And they're suffering as they're learning how to work out the cost of love. And so these are like big themes all throughout this letter. But what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to give them one like instruction for how to navigate really challenging times like this. When you're experiencing suffering as a Christian, how do you suffer well? How do you do it well in a way that glorifies God and is a blessing to those around you? But he's not just trying to give them instruction. He's also trying to give them some hope and encouragement. 
Um, because under all this persecution, under all this mistreatment, um, under them um, needing to gather in like small home groups and not being able to gather together, um, they are in real need of hope and encouragement to press on, to persevere, to push through. And so he's continually giving them encouragement and, and hope and saying, hey, remember what's in store for you. Remember that God's favor is on you. Um, and so that's what he's trying to do here, here in this letter. And, um, and so with, with, with all that being said, um, as you can see, the theme of our series in First Peter is called God's Family in Exile, because the big theme that Peter keeps on hitting at is saying, hey, remember, I know things are so difficult for you right now, but take heart because you are God's family. You have been born into this living hope. You're this new spiritual community. And not only that, but um, you have a glorious future waiting for you. So right now you're like exiles living in a land where you do not belong, but you are heading towards that future city where you will dwell with God in his presence. And all the suffering that you are experiencing today, that will one day um, be, be gone with. And so, um, yeah, so for today, though, specifically the first point that I want to make, I've got three main points I'm going to um, hit on today. The first point that I want to make is a point we've touched last couple of weeks, but I'm just going to um, go over it again because it's at the heart of what he's saying here in chapter three. And that is that we must honor those in authority over us. Um, so if you can put that slide up for us, Ruan, the one before it, I think I might have put in the wrong order, the other one. <laughs> There's no other one? There it is. So we must honor those in authority over us. So 1 Peter, um, so in the, in the chapter before this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to verse 14, um, he spoke to believers about their relationship with the government, and he said to them in verse 13 to verse 14, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. So first, the first authority he mentions is government. Hey, all of you, honor the government. The emperor, the, the, the governors, make sure that you're honoring those in government. Then in verse 18 of, of chapter 2, he speaks to slaves. And he says, household, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. So if you happen to be a Christian that has been sold into slavery, you were born into slavery, he's saying, hey, the power structures that are in play that you find yourself in, even though you're a Christian now, um, it doesn't mean you can just do away with that power structure. You still have to honor those that are in authority over you as masters. And then here in chapter 3, he addresses wives. And he says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, just to be very clear, I don't believe Peter is in this um, context generally speaking to, to all wives. I think he is specifically speaking to um, Christian wives who find themselves married to non-Christian husbands. Um, and the reason why I say that is because if you pay attention to what he says later on in chapter 3, he's continually um, giving them instruction for how their manner of life can actually bring about the conversion of their non-Christian husbands. And so um, these, these um, women um, that were in these situations... Um, these Christian women that were married to these non-Christian men, most likely what had happened is that they were non-Christians when they got married, and then somewhere along the way, someone shared the gospel with them, and they decided to convert into the Christian faith, but they still have these non-Christian husbands. Now, that would have been extremely difficult for them, because in this particular society, at this particular time, um, men had way more privilege and way more opportunity and way more freedom than, 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 than women had. That's just in general in society. And then in the home, in family life, the men were typically very domineering. And it was totally okay. It was totally accepted for them to act in, in, such, in such ways. And so you can imagine all the practical issues that would have shown up for these Christian women married to these often cruel non-Christian men. Um, some of the practical issues would have been that these non-Christian husbands probably did not permit their wives to have equal say in the home. They probably were not very supportive and not very nurturing. They probably did not value their wives as having great dignity and having great worth. Oftentimes, wives were treated as, 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 as property or something that existed for your own good, for your own gain, for your own satisfaction, not something as having innate dignity and, and, and worth. They probably did not take the time to cultivate the giftedness and the talents of their wives. They probably were very demanding and domineering in their sexual relationships. And they probably did not give much support in the raising of the children. 
So these are some of the practical issues going on for these Christian women. But then there was most likely also a whole bunch of theological questions going on as well. So for example, some of them could have been, if um, we are free from the law in Christ, why do we still need to submit to our non-Christian husband? You can imagine that being a question that many of these women had. He said, if we are ultimately submitted to Jesus Christ, then do we still have to submit to our unsaved husbands? So like, now that Christ is my Lord, why would I be treating my husband as a Lord or as a master, as someone ruling, ruling over me? Another question could have been, if my husband is unkind and mistreating and won't convert to Christianity after I've tried, do I still have to honor him and stay with him? These would have been very real questions that these women were, were facing. Um, but the crazy thing, what, what, what seems so crazy, really, it's not crazy, it's with the wisdom of God, but it seems so crazy to our worldly way of thinking, to our earthly mind, is that Peter's response to those questions and to the situation is that, yes, you should still submit. It seems crazy, but let me unpack, let me unpack the wisdom for you of it. So, um, one of the great Christian distinctives is that we do not respond to hate with hate, and we do not respond to cruelty with cruelty. Um, we do not respond to dishonor with dishonor. We don't fight fire with fire, because that only aggravates the issue, it only, but it only makes the problem bigger than what it already is. What we do is we fight fire with water, so when we are mistreated, we bless in return. When people are unkind to us, we respond with kindness in return. When people don't love us, we love them nonetheless. And so Jesus made this really clear in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to verse 42. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks of you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So if you look at the life of Jesus, you can see that he lived his life exactly like what is said there in Matthew chapter 5. He had every right to retaliate as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, as the Son of God, as the creator of the universe. He had every right to, in the way that, you know, I think it was James and John when the Samaritan village wouldn't accept him to pass through, you know, and James and John, it's like, well, Jesus, why don't you call down fire from on high and just wipe out that village for not honoring you and allowing you to pass through? And Jesus corrects him and says that you don't understand what's, what's, what's going on. You're not getting the wisdom that I'm living by yet. So Jesus had a right to wipe out that village. Of course he could have done it, but he chooses not to do it. And then ultimately when he's crucified, nailed to the cross by sinners that are doing it unlawfully, he had every right to respond. He even says to Peter when, on the night of his arrest that I could call down 72,000 angels this very moment to come to my rescue, but he doesn't want to. Instead, what he does in that moment is he heals one of the Roman soldiers' ears um, that is about to take him off um, in arrest after Peter chopped off his ear. So it's just this extremely like upside down way of thinking when you compare it to the way of thinking of the world. But this is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of, 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 of Jesus Christ is that we, in a way that doesn't make sense to the world, choose to continually bless and honor and love even when we are mis. Um, even when we are mis mistreated. Um, and they don't have to be good leaders, they don't have to be kind, they don't have to be wise, they don't have to be worthy. We just choose to show, to show honor. And, um, and so this obviously applies to, to all of us in um, so many ways. Um, we will feel it when it comes to the government, we will feel the pinch when it comes to a boss or a manager, we will feel the pinch with police officers and judges. We will feel it with parents. We will feel it in marriage if you have a marriage that, op that operates um, with headship and submission. You will feel the tension in um, all of these different areas. And, um, and so what I want to encourage you here with this, this morning is that the way of the kingdom is the way of going the extra mile. It is the way of turning the other cheek. It is the way of blessing those who curse you. So that's where I want to start this, this, um, this, 
this, this morning. It's the first point I want to make. Later on, I'll um, give more clarification to that because there are circumstances, of course, where um, abuse is going too far and you have total freedom to walk away, um, um, whether it's physical or emotional or, or, or psychological. There are situations like that. And I totally believe that Jesus has compassion for that. But the general principle that applies to us as Christians is that we want to turn the other cheek and we want to go the extra mile because that's the way of Jesus. Um, the second point I really want to make this morning is that godly submission is attractive, persuasive, and transformative for those in authority over us. This is the um, second reason why it is so important for us to honor those in authority over us, even when they're being unkind towards us. So Peter says in first chapter um, 3, verse, um, verse 3, to, oh, sorry, verse 1 to verse 2, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. So they may be won, out, won over without a word by the way their wives live and when they observe your pure and reverent lives. So when we choose to show honor to those in authority over us when they're mistreating us, Peter is saying there is a power in you doing that. There is this incredibly beautiful thing that takes place where your love towards them when they're mistreating you actually has the power to transform their hearts. So they, they, they're hard-hearted towards you, maybe they're angry towards you, they're treating you unkindly, they're, they're, they're not just, but when you choose to respond with blessing instead of cursing and kindness instead of unkindness, that has the ability to transform their hearts. And so, um, and Peter touches on this in the um, chapter before, in um, chapter 2, verse, um, verse 24 to verse 25, when he talks about Jesus. He says that he himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, so that is, we in our sins crucified him. We in our in our sinfulness whipped him. We in our sin um, spat in his face. We in our sin put a crown of thorns on his head. I don't think it's talking about some sort of a spiritual thing that's taking place where the sins of mankind are mystically placed on Jesus Christ. I think this Peter's referring to Jesus suffering the consequences of our sinfulness, us mistreating him. So he bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. And then he says, by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus suffered under the consequences of our sin, but because he suffered so lovingly, his suffering resulted in our transformation and reconciliation. Because he suffered so lovingly, his suffering resulted in our transformation and reconciliation. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so Peter is saying to these non-Christian wives in these really difficult situations, he's saying, I know it is really, really hard for you. Like, I know it is like a really massive challenge. I know that you, many of you are being mistreated. And you're not being dealt with kindly. But remember that you suffering lovingly in that situation is actually the very power of God that has the ability to transform your husband's heart so that he might be won over to the faith. One of the classic stories of this in church history is St. Augustine, who in his writings describes how this took place with his mom and dad. So his mom, Monica, was a faithful Christian, and his dad was a um, cruel um, pagan man. And um, he writes in his letters about his mom. He said, she served him as her master and did all she could to win him for you. So that is to God. Speaking to him um, of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband um, was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. So he writes about his mother who just through the beauty of her conduct and the way that she treated her ungodly husband, eventually after many, many years, actually won him over to, to the Lord. And that's what Peter's getting at here. He's saying, wives, um, I don't want you to be disheartened in this situation. There is hope that 
by you living your life in a certain way, in this beautiful, reverent, godly way, you will actually have the ability to win your husband over to the faith as well. So, so, so don't lose heart. So that doesn't mean that, she, that they didn't share the gospel with their, their husbands. Um, and when it says without a word, it doesn't mean that it, she never shared the gospel. Peter, in um, the earlier chapters, is very emphatic about the power of the gospel. He, he hits really hard about how important it is for us to announce the gospel. So maybe they already shared the gospel, but the husband wasn't willing to really listen or to receive it. And he's saying, well, now moving forward, win him over by the beauty of your life, by the purity of your conduct, by your reverence, without a word. Let him see in you that Jesus is real. Let him see in you that Jesus is good. Let him see in you that Jesus is loving. Let him see in you that these things that you have spoken to him about um, is real, that it actually makes a difference when the, when the rubber hits the road. And so, um, so that is what he's saying to these non-Christian wives, but this applies with any situation that you find yourself in where there's authority over you that's, that's mistreating you, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's with parents, whether that is with the government, when we conduct our lives in a pure and reverent way, God blesses that with the power of the Spirit, and it has the ability to transform the hearts of those that are ruling over us. Also, we want to see in verse, um, verse 3, um, I'm going to read that out for us again. Peter says, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, quickly, this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit is for all Christians. It's not a thing that's just for women. Um, <laughs> is that you, Keith? I didn't know if it was you, but that was just like a pure stab in the dark. And <laughs> um, it's not just a thing for wives because the virtue of gentleness and quietness is something that in other passages is spoken about for all of us. So gentleness is a, a fruit of the Spirit. In um, 1 Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that we must all go about living our lives in a quiet way. Um, Jesus made it really, really clear that it's the meek that will inherit the earth. And so this gentleness and quietness that is spoken of here, yes, he's applying it to women, but that doesn't mean that it's only applied to women ultimately. It applies to all of us. We all need to live our lives in a gentle and quiet way. This is, this is the, um, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, but what Peter is hit, hitting at here is, um, he's, as he's talking to these um, Christian women, he's obviously speaking to an issue of the day, which I would argue is not just an issue of his day, it's just as much an issue of our day, and that is the tendency to be far more focused on outward appearance than we are on the content of our hearts. Once again, not just an issue for women, it's an issue for all of us, but he's talking specifically to the women at this point. And so that's why he's highlighting it. And he's saying, don't be so caught up in having elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, jewelry or fine clothes, but make the chief focus in your life or make sure that your focus is more so on having a godly character, on having a beauty that shines from the inside out. That is far more important in the sight of God than you appearing a certain way that impresses those around you. Paul makes a similar point in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 to verse 8. He says, But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness, for the training of the body has limited benefit. But godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So you can hit the gym, you can run as much as you want and get really, really fit. Um, you can sculpt your body to look just exactly like what you've seen on Instagram. And he says, after doing, after doing all of that, there is benefit to it, but it's limited benefit. There's limited benefit to it. So the real benefit is you training yourself for godliness because that has benefit in this life and in the life to come. In this life, you will be a blessing to those around you. You will honor God. You will bring life to society if you have a godly character. And that is of far more value than you getting people's approval for what you look like. Now, this of course, applies to what we look like physically, but it also applies to what people own, the cars they drive, the houses that they live in. It, it, it applies to them and their talents and wanting approval for their, 
for their talents. It applies to the position that they hold at work, whether they're the boss or whether they're a manager or whether they're overseeing people. It applies for all these things. Peter's saying, hey, stop pursuing the car and stop pursuing the title and stop pursuing the influence and stop doing all these things that you're ultimately pursuing for people's approval. Make sure that what you're pursuing more than that is godliness. So when I say stop pursuing these things, I don't mean that it's totally irrelevant. There's no problem with you working for a car. There's no problem with you working for a, a, a rise at work. But see to it that you're pursuing a good heart more than those things. Does that make sense? Good. So in this, in this regard, we have to continually renew our minds. One of the things that Scripture tells us to do is to renew our minds continually, so work on the way that we're thinking, wash our thinking through with the truth of God so that we can live our lives in a way that is pleasing to God. And we're living in a world that is continually getting us to focus on the things of appearance, and it is causing our sense of what is truly valuable to go off kilter. And in many ways, we're like small children when it comes to money in this regard. So um, with, our, with our kids, they're much better now because they're getting an idea of money and they're getting an idea of um, what is of value and what is not of value. But, you know, when they were like four or five, if you would take a $2 coin and a 50-cent piece and you offer both to them at the same time, they're going to go for the 50-cent piece over and over and over again because they're looking at it and going, the 50-cent piece is bigger than the $2 coin, so I'm going to pick that. And so they their, their system or their, their, their paradigm of determining what is valuable and what is not valuable is off because they haven't learned yet how money actually works. And we are just like kids in many regards like that. We, we live in this world that is continually trying to push us in a way that makes us think that the appearance is so much more valuable than what is actually going on in our hearts. And what we have to do is come back to the Word of God over and over and over again and say, hang on, no. The $2 coin is actually of much more worth than the 50 cent piece. And so um, I think Peter's trying to remind these Christian wives of that. And, um, and, uh, and the next thing I want to focus on in just a section that we read is in verse 5, where he then goes on to say, um, For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Do not fear any intimidation. What is the number one reason why we struggle to submit? It's the fear of intimidation. Now, what about me? Like, if this person's treating me cruelly, like, what's going to happen to me? How, how am I going to feel? What is going to happen to my reputation? What about my safety? What about my dreams? What about my goals? The reason why we don't like submitting is because of the fear of intimidation. And what Peter's saying is hey, the only way that we can actually truly submit ourselves to authorities that are unkind is if we do not put our hope in them treating us well, but we put our hope in the Lord. We put our hope in, in God as the judge. He says that in chapter 2. We put our hope in God as our provider. We put our hope in God as our defendant. As we hope in Him, it gives us this ability to no longer be intimidated by man and what man can, can do to us. And he uses Sarah as this example who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, calling him Master. So Sarah and Abraham also lived in a time where patriarchy um, um, was just the norm of husbands and wives' relationship to each other. And um, what Abraham said went. It was, that was it. Like, and so when Abraham took him to a foreign land to go and live in a foreign land, on two different occasions, Abraham, in order to protect his own life, pretended that Sarah wasn't his wife. And then Sarah ended up getting taken off by the kings, the rulers of the land, to be taken as their own wives. And then eventually the truth came out because God judged those men for taking Sarah as their wives when she was already married. And so very bizarre situation, very, very weird situation that is absolutely not okay. If you as a husband find yourself in a situation when your own life is in danger and you're like, take my wife, and then you run for safety, that's not okay. Just to be very clear here this morning, 
And this passage also doesn't give you permission, husbands, to go home this afternoon and tell your wives that they have to start calling you Lord either. Just to be very clear, Keith. (laughs) But he uses this crazy example of Sarah. And he said that she put her hope in God. And that's why she could be in an outlandish situation like that. And... um, Make it through it and persevere in a way that was, was, was honoring to God. So if you want to deal with your fear of people and what they can do to you, the solution is to get yourself grounded in God and how much he loves you and how much he is for you and how much he is at work, even in the difficulty of the situation. The third last point, the like overarching point that I want to um, look at here if you could put that up for us, Ruan, is that strength must be used to serve and empower and not to domineer. So verse 7 says that husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with their weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So all throughout history, typically men have dominated women for a pretty simple reason, um, and that's that they're stronger than what women are, generally speaking. And so all throughout societies, um, you have found men in positions of power and men in positions of authority because they've been able to use their strength to intimidate the women so that the women submit. Um, And Peter is not okay with that whatsoever. Um, And so there's a few things here I want to highlight just in verse 7. The first thing he says is live with your wives in an understanding way, in an understanding way. As men, we have to understand that that the strength that God has given us, we can all at times feel tempted to use that strength to enforce our our own will. Now, of course, the far end of the, like the, the bad end of the spectrum is husbands that are actually physically abusive. Um, They can use their strength to enforce their way, but it doesn't just happen physically. Um, Husbands can do it in the same way just by by raising their voice and speaking in a way that is is aggressively, um, or is is aggressive. Um, Husbands can do this by being entirely passive, which is very common, common in our culture, where the husband doesn't help out very much with the wife um, for things at home, doesn't really help out with the kids, um, and uh, his attitude is, what are you going to do about it? No, wife, what are you going to do about it? This, this, is, this is how I'm, 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 I'm going to live my wife. And yeah, what is the wife going to do about it? She's not going to um, take him on in a fight. And so he uses his strength to, to, to dominate the wife. And Peter's saying, that's not okay. Christian husbands need to live with their wives in an understanding way. You need to live with compassion, and you need to live with, live with empathy, and you need to live with, with, with gentleness in the way that you relate to your wife. And then my favorite phrase in this section, probably like this whole portion of scripture, is where he says, show them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And so he's saying, I get it that you have more strength And because of your strength, you probably live in society and you probably have the upper hand within society as well. He says, but as a Christian, that doesn't give you the the right or the privilege now to go and lord that strength and that privilege that you have within society over your wife. Instead, what you're supposed to do is raise her up with you as a co-heir of the grace of life. Let me unpack this for you a bit more and I'm going to just um, rely on my notes for this section because I want to be really clear. So I personally believe that Scripture tells us that marriage is to parallel the relationship that exists between Jesus and his church. The husband is as Jesus, and the wife is as the church. Just as Christ and the church will one day co-reign with each other, in the same way I believe it's God's vision for husbands and wives to co-reign with each other. This co-reigning, co-ruling, co-operating, co-partnership is the end goal of both the both Christ and the church, and husbands and wives. Christ might be the head of the church, but Christ's intent is to use his headship to serve and empower his wife 
so that she might co-reign alongside him in the fullness of what she was created to be. In no way does Christ want to use his strength or his headship to domineer his wife. In the same way, husbands might be the head of their wives, but husbands should be intent on using their headship to empower their wives so that they might co-reign alongside them in the fullness of what they were created to be. In no way should a husband use his strength or headship to domineer his wife. Christ-like headship is not about having the privilege to have things your way or even to have the final say. Christ-like headship is about having the responsibility of using your strength to lift up and empower your bride to flourish into her fullness. If Jesus does his job well, and I believe he will, he will one day have a spotless bride to rule alongside him as a co-heir. And likewise, generally speaking, if a husband does his job well, he will have a spotless bride to rule alongside him. That's the point, I think, is at the heart of Peter's vision here. At the, at, the, at the heart of Peter's vision is that Jesus and his church is the picture of a husband and a bride. And the goal for Jesus is to raise up his bride, is to raise up his church to co-rule and co-reign the earth with him, to use his bride's giftings and to use his bride's vision and to use his bride's, his bride's loves and passions and creativity and administration and all these things to use his bride so that she might sit with him on his throne and rule the earth. That's what Jesus wants for his bride. And I think that is also the vision of a godly Christian marriage. It's where the husband is looking to raise up his wife and to bless his wife and say, what gifting does she have? What talents does she have? What insight does she have? What, what ability, what knowledge, what perspective does she have that I can raise her up to co-rule, co-reign with me and oversee the earth, oversee my family, oversee the situation? And so it becomes this really beautiful um, partnership in which weaknesses are being covered by one another's strengths and um, other strengths are making up for, for others' weaknesses. And so Peter is saying, husbands, don't use your strength to domineer. Use your strength to bless. Use your strength to care. Use your strength to actually empower women as co-heirs of life. And it's on this particular point that I think we as men have a lot of repenting to do. We have a lot of repenting to do. And, um, you know, in the, in the last couple of weeks, um, quite a few times here in our uh, announcements, we've mentioned that we've got this women com- women's conference coming up. And um, in this women com- women's conference, um, what we really feel like God wants to do is actually heal wounds that many women are carrying in their hearts. And a lot of those wounds, maybe even most of those wounds, have come from men. The way that uncles, fathers, grandfathers, brothers have treated the women in their, in their lives. And leading up to that event, we've mentioned here a few times that what we want to actually hold is a men's intercession night. It's going to be on the Wednesday night before the women's conference. And the reason for that men's gathering is that we want an opportunity for us as men to actually gather together and to repent for the ways that we have failed to affirm the worth of women, where we have failed to love them and to treat them and to value them as co-heirs of the grace of God, as co-heirs of the life, the eternal life that we have in Christ. And, um, and so I'm not, I mean, if the Spirit's already working on your heart here today and um, there's things that you want to repent of already to your wife or to a mother or to a sister, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, I'd love to encourage you to do that. But even more what I'd love to do is, love to encourage you to do is between now and when we have that men's gathering on that night, I'd love to encourage you to go before the Lord and say, please, Shine your light into my heart and show me where in my life I have failed to affirm the worth of women. And um, as the Lord starts showing you things and starts working on your heart, we will then gather together on that Wednesday night leading up to that women's event. And we as the men will take responsibility before the Lord for the ways that we have failed women. And then off the back of that, what we're going to do is we're going to pray for the women. 
And I believe that once there is repentance from us as men for where we have failed women, that actually opens up the floodgates for the blessings to flow through us to the women in our marriages, in our families here in this church. Because what Peter says here is, um, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in understanding ways with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. What's Peter saying? Saying, men, when you mistreat women, you're messing with God. And you can pray, and you can ask God to bless, you can ask God to move, you can ask God to, to do whatever it is that you're asking for, but God's actually judging you. And he's not going to answer that prayer until there is repentance for how you're treating women. So when you mistreat them, your prayers are hindered, is what Peter is saying. So, but once there is repentance, then suddenly the blessing can flow. And so I believe that what's going to happen on that night is that as we as Men take ownership for the ways that we failed women. We go before God, we repent for it, and then we intercede for our women. It's creating space for blessing to flow and touch the women's lives and, and heal the wounds that many of them are carrying. So God will always rise up to defend the weak and the mistreated. This is an ethic all throughout Scripture. And time and time again, the harshest judgments that Christ speaks about are towards people that use power and use authority and use strength to take advantage of those that are weak. This is the reason why Jesus spoke so fiercely against the religious leaders of the day and said for them, the darkest of darkness is reserved in judgment because they use their power, they use their privilege, they use their strength to take advantage of the widows and the orphans and the weak ones that didn't know better in society. So is all that making sense? Yeah. So a couple of clarifying questions. I focused a lot on the fact that these were non-Christian women um, relating to, um, sorry, Christian women in marriage with non-Christian men. And I think that's specifically what Peter was addressing. So some of you might be wondering, but what about headship and submission in a godly marriage? Um, and we will have more on that in the, the future, like I mentioned, Pat and I have um, nuanced views in this regard. One of the things that we share in common is what I described about our, our, our vision that ultimately a godly marriage is one where husband and wife co-rule and co-reign alongside each other. But we have different nuances in our views on that. Um, and so what we would like to do is actually just take more time to nut those things out ourselves and talk those things through and then at a future stage talk about that um, in more clarity. But if you've got opinions and thoughts and stuff on that, we welcome it. We love to talk to you about it. This is, like I said before, a church where we, um, we want to engage in thought and discussion and work in these things through ourselves. Um, um, when can a Christian woman dishonor her husband if she finds herself in a marriage when the man regards himself as the authority? Um, it's like we mentioned the last couple of weeks. Whenever that authority um, asks you to do anything that God wouldn't have you do. Um, so if, if you're a wife in a relationship like that and the husband expects you to, um, to cheat on the taxes or to um, disobey the law of the land or whatever like that, then you have total freedom to, to, to disobey because you're obeying the higher authority, which is, which is God. What about a marriage that is physically, emotionally, psychologically abusive? Like I mentioned before, one of the saddest things about this passage of Scripture is that it has been used time and time again by men to justify those things, to, to, to justify abuse. Um, one of the things that I have heard this come up so often talking to women is actually to do with sexual relationships, where men have used this verse to tell women that they need to have sex with them more often um, and that they're being disobedient as wives for not doing so. Um, which is absolutely, absolutely, I don't know where that came from, but contrary to the ways of God, absolutely not okay. In, 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 in any way, shape, or form, not okay. And so there is definitely a line where, where women, um, in, with having wise counsel and walking with the Spirit, they can draw the line and go, this abuse is going too far for the sake of your own safety and welfare 
you have freedom to walk away. Um, and so um, I believe that God being a God of compassion and a God of empathy and a God of understanding would, 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 um, is totally in support of that. But in saying that, the principle that we've been looking at this morning still applies at the same time. So you can recognize that there is you needing discernment and wisdom as you navigate these things with the Lord, recognizing that there is this wisdom and power of God in showing submission to bad authority and that God uses that to transform hearts, but at the same time recognizing that there is also a line that can be crossed where things go too far. And for the sake of your own safety and welfare, you need to protect yourself. Um... And the last thing I've already spoken about was what about men that use this passage to domineer their wives? And um, as I've already said, that is absolutely not okay. And for husbands on this point, if you want to see transformation in your wife, the way that you see transformation is not by demanding obedience and demanding change. That has never worked. There was an old covenant and a system of law that tried that, and it didn't work for Israel. You can make rules and you can make laws and you can try to enforce them, but it's not going to do anything. The way that a heart is transformed is through foot washing. It's through selfless laying down of your own life for the good of another person. So husbands and your wives, in your, in, your, in your marriages, if there's things that, that um, you struggle with, that are hard with, the way that you actually see transformation take place is by the way of the cross. It's you choosing to affirm the wife of your bride, irrespective of the things that are frustrating you, you choosing to bless your bride, you choosing to serve your bride, you choosing to lay down your life sacrificially for your bride, and God uses that, the wisdom of the cross, to bring about transformation, not you trying to enforce a standard or a law. It doesn't work. So with all that said, Pat, any clarification you want to give, anything else you want to say? Yeah, that's good. You don't want to step into the mess. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, um, music team, can you come up? That would be good. If you'd all like to please stand with me. I'd love for you to just take some time and um, there was a lot that was covered this morning and I came from lots of different angles and tried to touch on different nuances and um, if you were able to follow with all of that then then awesome but uh, more than anything what matters here this morning is that you hear from God and not from me and so um, what I'd love to do is just before that we actually start singing the next song I'd love for you to just to take some time and just go before God and say Holy Spirit what is there that you want to talk to me about this morning? What is there going on in my heart, in my life, in my views of marriage, my views of women, my views of men, that um, you would just like to speak to me about? And I'd also just like to say that in listening for that voice, listen for that voice of hope and for the voice of love and compassion and understanding not for a voice of condemnation and accusation and, and, um, and things like that. So just take a bit of time just to listen.
Father in heaven, we um, open up our hearts to you, Lord. And this morning we want to, to meet with you. We want to hear from you, Lord. Lord, where else do we have, a go, have to go? It's only your words that are the words of eternal life. Lord, you are our daily bread. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just meet people right where they're at this morning in their fears and their struggles and their sins. And I pray that you would give hope to their hearts. I pray that you'd give encouragement where there's fear. I pray that you would minister healing where there are wounds. We ask for the marriages here in this church, Lord. We ask that we would have beautiful marriages here in this church. Lord, marriages that look like Jesus and his church. And so we commit our marriages to you, God, and, and ask that you would be at work, Lord, purifying, restoring, reconciling, replacing unforgiveness with forgiveness placing hard-heartedness with tenderness, pride with humility, arrogance with compassion, empathy. We look to you, God, and ask that you would bless our marriages. And then we want to ask, God, that your spirit would sweep through this church and, and touch the hearts of the men specifically, God, for the ways that we have failed to affirm the worth of the women in our lives. Ask God that there would be genuine repentance. Over the weeks to come, Lord, please speak to us. Please minister to us. Please humble us in the ways that we need to be humbled so that we might be exalted by you, Lord, and not exalted in our own strength. love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you're doing here in our church. We thank you for the community, God, that you are building, for the ways that you are knitting us together in, in love with one another, and, and that we're on a journey with you, God, that you are building something beautiful here, and we're so excited about what you're doing, God, and we just ask that you would continue all the more to lead us and to speak to us and to direct us, God. Lord, we belong to you. We are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. So lead us forward, God, into the things that you have in store for us.